The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. The Bears trash the Vikings before preparing to host the Red Hot Eagles on Sunday afternoon. Plus, I get you all caught up on everything happening around the NFL in week 17 in this week's episode of Bear With Me. Hello and welcome to Bear With Me, a show all about the now NFC North Championship 12-4 playoff-bound Chicago Bears. I'm your host, Robert Schmitz, here on Windy City Gridiron's podcast channel. We are for Chicago Bears fans, by Chicago Bears fans. In this show, we review the Bears game that just happened, preview the Bears game that will happen, and then circle around the rest of the NFL at large just to make sure that you, the fan, are aware of everything else that's going on in the league. So without any further ado, let's get right on into it. The Bears beat the Vikings 24-10 in Minnesota in a game that honestly was a little bit embarrassing to watch, just considering where the Vikings have been and where they are now. They've now gone from 13-3 last year with Case Keenum at the helm to a Kirk Cousins-led 8-7-1. Not good enough, and now they're out of the playoffs. I know I'm not the first one to come up with this take, but that $84 million contract that Kirk Cousins has to his name... Guys, that's not looking so good right now. You got two more years with a guy who, generally speaking, hasn't been very good when it counts. And I know, there's plenty of things that you could blame. You could blame a really poor performance from a Vikings offensive line. You could blame the fact that he generally doesn't get any running help. You could blame the fact that they just fired their offensive coordinator three games ago. But at the end of the day, the Vikings had something to gain and something to lose here, and the Bears really realistically had neither if the vikings lost they were done as long as the eagles won which of course they did against a redskins team without a quarterback and if the vikings won they were in the playoffs that's where you need your best players to show up and show up big the bears on the other hand debatably didn't even need to play their starters if you just made the assumption that the rams were going to just destroy the 49ers which by the way They did. So the Bears playing was just out of sheer grit, merit, and wanting to put down a division rival. And oh boy, 
did they put down that division rival? The number one positive that I personally saw in this game was that big, big players are making big, big plays where it counts. Jordan Howard, in particular, has absolutely resurged. On 21 carries, he had 109 yards. But it's not just the numbers, is it? It's how he did it as well. Jordan Howard did this by exploiting holes just like he used to, seeing the field well, and running hard. Uh, one play that I'll highlight is his touchdown run to end that first drive in the first quarter. He takes a big, big hit after great run blocking by Adam Shaheen and Charles Leno to seal the edge, but he takes a big shot in from his left, powers through it, puts the defender back on the ground, and surges forward the extra two yards he needs to plunk his way into the goal line. If that's not vintage Jordan Howard, then I don't know what is. And oh my goodness, given that Jordan Howard was just a shell of himself for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks to start the season, it is phenomenal. It is such good news to see him sort of finding himself again right as the Bears go into the playoffs. The Bears are going to need a rushing attack, especially to just buoy Mitch Trubisky, who, while he's been playing phenomenal football, could use all the help he gets as the Bears try to control the clock, keep the defense off the field so that those guys can just go assault offenses one after another. But it wasn't just Howard who made phenomenal plays for the Bears. It was also Mitch Trubisky who played a really, really good game yesterday. I hesitate to use words like phenomenal or amazing because this wasn't the performance against Green Bay. This wasn't the performance against Detroit Volume 2. But this was a great one. He had only 163 yards on 18 throws and 26 attempts, but they were big ones. Frankly, if you ask me, Trubisky's game this last week is the perfect example of how statistics can be a little bit deceiving sometimes when you just look at their raw values. What would you want a quarterback to do? I want my quarterback to be able to pick up third downs reliably and score points. And here's the skinny. In that 18 throws, 26 attempts, and 163 yards, we've got buried deep in there that the Bears faced 12 third down opportunities with the game actually in hand, like as in before the lead was too big that we just started running Cunningham on third downs. One of those, we gave the ball to Jordan Howard and he picked it up. The other 11, the ball was all in Mitch Trubisky's hand. And of those 11 attempts, he converted seven of them. So our quarterback against one of the better defenses in the NFL went out against the Vikings in a game where the defense was dominating away from home and picked up seven of the 11 possible first downs that he could have. Six with his arm and one with his legs. That that's growth, if you ask me, and if Trubisky can keep, without turning the ball over, converting third downs and keeping this offense churning, we're going to burn a lot of clock, we're going to keep the defense rested, we're going to score points, and we're going to kill games just like the Bears want to. Frankly, Trubisky's ability to be successful on third down, because remember, of the 12 viable third downs he was given the opportunity to convert 11 of them, was a direct pillar in allowing the Bears' rushing attack to gain the 160-some-odd yards that they ended up collecting. Without those rushing yards, we're not able to control the game quite as well. Without Trubisky's passing yards, we're not able to sustain the rushing threat. You ask me, this was a perfectly executed offensive day in a very weird color of paint because it wasn't 35 points and it wasn't a really sexy total of yards, just an extremely efficient, precise, 
303 yards as the Bears choked out a really good Vikings team offensively and defensively. Now, this game didn't come without its price, as almost immediately, seriously, on the first drive of the game, the Bears saw Anthony Miller. It looked like he re-separated his shoulder, but this is all speculation. The point is, he left the game with his left shoulder hanging much lower than his right shoulder in a little bit of a gruesome fashion. Now, like I talked on last week's podcast, I was frankly in favor of resting the starters for more or less this exact reason. I wanted to take as many healthy starters as possible into the playoffs, no matter who we were playing, and kind of assumed we would end up playing in the wild card round. And with the Rams absolutely demolishing the 49ers, well, that is what happened. With that said, the Windy City Gridiron writers had convinced me starting around Friday or Saturday that playing the starters was probably the best bet for a rhythm and momentum purpose. And so in that regard, while we did see both Taylor Gabriel and Anthony Miller leave the game due to injury, I was very thankful that nobody else got hurt along the way. Yeah, it's a big deal that we lost our number two and number three receiver while also having Allen Robinson already sidelined due to nicky-nack injuries. But hey, at the end of the day, you're going to probably have to make some sacrifices. And now that Nagy has come out and said that both guys should be expected to come back, we can rest a little bit easier. That said, I'm not going to act like it was fun to watch some of our best players leave the field throughout the day knowing that we needed them less in yesterday's game and much more in games to come. So, best wishes to Taylor Gabriel and Anthony Miller. We really hope that y'all return to full strength and are able to help the Bears throughout their playoff run because this, this team really does have a shot. But I'll get into that in just a little bit. A couple of players I wanted to highlight in their absence because their injuries did mean that we had to field some receivers were Kevin White and Javon Wims. I'll tell you what's weird. Javon Wims looked like what we expected Kevin White to look like as a rookie. Wims spent the entire afternoon running around consistently making tough contested catches. And while he didn't have gaudy numbers, only reeling in four catches for 32 yards, he felt like he was all over the field. And when Trubisky would throw for a long first down, it ended up being number 83 receiving the ball, going to ground and ultimately making the play. When you compare that to Kevin White, who despite his phenomenal 22-yard grab, ended up having one play deep down the sidelines where he decided that he should wrestle the cornerback to the ground rather than turn back for the ball, uh, they looked very, very different. You can tell that one probably has a future with the Bears and the other doesn't. Kevin, I wish the best to you, but you just didn't look all that great yesterday. I'm really not trying to hammer a guy. Uh, He just looked not as good as plenty of the other players. That said, I will tell you what, I'm impressed that White, Bellamy, Burton, Shaheen, and the rest of the players that were on the field were able to do as much damage to the Vikings as they did, given that the Bears were, at the time, missing their number one, number two, and number three receivers. That's not easy to do when you're facing a defense as good as the Vikings, so... Whether that's credit to Matt Nagy, credit to Trey Burton, who caught a couple of balls late in the game, or just more credit to the aforementioned whims, I just did want to highlight that the offense did a phenomenal job with what they had and stayed relatively safe despite, like we said earlier, injuries to Anthony Miller and Taylor Gabriel. Hopefully those two are as good as Nagy wants us to believe and are able to play hard against the Eagles this weekend. Now, putting offense aside, as we've covered it pretty well so far, let's talk about this Bears Super Bowl-level defense. And yeah, 
I said it because after a performance like this, I am a total believer that these Bears have every ability to win the Super Bowl. That's not to say they will, but boy, oh boy, if they can take their defense on the road like they did with Minnesota, every single team in the league had better watch out because Kirk Cousins and the Vikings had no business being on the field with this Bears defense. This is a team whose leading rusher, Dalvin Cook, a very good back within himself, had 11 carries for 39 yards, a relatively average statistic on a Bears team that is allowing the least rushing yards per game in the NFL up to now. Kirk Cousins was 20 for 33 with 132 yards and a score. And honestly, if he didn't have about 40 yards in quote-unquote garbage time, he might have been held to under 100 yards himself. This Bears defense was relentless, pressuring throughout the game, coming up with four sacks as everybody seemed to break through the pocket at some point. One of the best examples to me of this exact thing was early in the game, one of the first Vikings drives, uh, Kirk Cousins and the Vikings hit a third and three situation on their side of the field. And who was it that broke through the pocket for the sack? It was Eddie Goldman. That's right, Eddie Goldman. Because this defense doesn't just have all-pro Khalil Mack, all-pro Eddie Jackson, Pro Bowl Kyle Fuller, Pro Bowl Akeem Hicks, and standout Leonard Floyd. It's also got a nose tackle like Eddie Goldman that's able to provide pressure up the middle. This defense, speaking honestly, is a nightmare for opposing offenses to face because even though there are plenty of other defenses like the Ravens out there that are apparently number one in some people's rankings, this defense just keeps blowing people away. They've got guys who, when you line up against them one-on-one, -on -one, are going to beat you more plays than they they're going to give up, or at least that's their attitude. Guys like Roquan Smith have come into themselves and are now flying around covering tight ends and making big plays in the running game. Danny Trevathan has everybody in order right where they need to be, and the front four of, generally speaking, uh, it's, a, it's a lot of people, so there's going to be more than four here, but Mack, Leonard Floyd, Akeem Hicks, Roy Robertson-Harris, uh, Jonathan Bullard, and yes, Eddie Goldman are all able to consistently generate pressure, whether they use a stunt that's actually called by Vic Fangio or just straight up rushing as the four of them. They're able to provide consistent pressure in the run game and the passing game and just blow open people's playbooks. Most playbooks, as I'm sure y'all are all aware, consist on using the run to try and set up play action so that you can take deep shots down the field or using West Coast-inspired tactics like quick screens, quick outs, slant, basically short passes to set up running game and ultimately set up deeper passes. That's what most offenses try to do. They set up the deeper pass so they can keep working the short stuff, so that they can keep working the deep stuff, and they kind of go back and forth. The idea is to get your safeties on the other team scooting forward after short stuff and beat them deep. And then they scoot back up because of the deep stuff and you burn them short. I'm sure you'll all know this. But, given that that's the case, this Bears defense just keeps mugging all that short stuff. So then you can't really try the long stuff because they'll just pick you off if you do. So then the offense is scrambling to find anything that works. And as we've seen with the Rams now, the 49ers, the Vikings, I mean, I could name plenty of teams, but really Aaron Rodgers is the only one that solved this Bears puzzle, and even he only did it for about one drive. And then the Bears went right back to beating him up. This Bears defense is shutting people out. They are defeating people on a play-to-play -play basis, and honestly, this looks like what the Monsters of the Midway were foretold to be oh so many years ago. If you want a team that embodies that Monsters of the midway attitude 
This is it. Don't look any further. This team should have your heart right now. Again, just to recap exactly what this Vikings game was, this Bears team came into the game 11-4 and on the off chance that the 49ers were going to beat the Rams in Los Angeles. They might have a shot at a two seed, but outside of that, they had no reason to try in this game other than the fact that it was a division rival and shoulder shrug, why not? The Vikings, on the other hand, had their newly minted $84 million quarterback leading a team that just was 13-3 and and now was 8-6-1 in a game where if they lost, it was over. This was do or die. The Eagles were too hot to be expected to lose to a team like the Redskins that didn't have a quarterback, and lo and behold, they didn't. So this was a game the Vikings had to win. They knew they had to win. Zimmer knew, their coach, that they had to win, and they just got devastated. A team with nothing to play for other than pride outmuscled a team with everything to lose. And now it's over for the Vikings. But the Bears drum beats on and it beats so much stronger because of a statement like what they were able to just make. After all, if they can get up for the games that don't matter, oh, you better believe they can get up for the ones that do. And without further ado, let's now proceed into our preview of the Bears game against the Eagles, which I think is going to be a sparkler if you're a Bear fan. I don't know. I mean, the more that I watch this Eagles team, the more that I see a team that's offense is very, very beatable by a good Bears defense. Plus, I think a consistent Bears offense should be able to attack an Eagles defense that has its weaknesses in the secondary, but is pretty solid against the run itself. We'll cover all of that in just a second. But first, let's review who Nick Foles is and why I believe that coming into this game, he ought to be ready to turn in one of his worst performances that he's had as a pro yet. So Nick Foles is the proof in the pudding that more often than not, an NFL quarterback is as much a product of their own ability as they are of all the players around them, the system that they're playing in, and the head coach that they're playing under. The idea is that unless you're a truly transcendent talent, you, if you're playing with bad players in a bad system, are probably going to look bad. And if you play in a good system with good players, you're probably going to look good. Nick Foles embodies this. He's the backup quarterback that everybody ought to want and the starter that, frankly, many people would be happy with because he is good at one thing and one thing namely. He can deliver the ball accurately and on time from the pocket with a relatively quick read. Now, what does this mean? This means that if you don't have a pocket, Nick Foles is likely to struggle. He's not a particularly mobile quarterback, though he can throw on the run with accuracy. He also struggles with ball velocity. You can see this certainly in his latest two games against the Texans and the Redskins, as well as, frankly, most of the other games through his career. His deep ball is pretty because most deep balls aren't ropes, and his short passes are to wide-open guys with plenty of space so that a slow-ish ball doesn't really bother their ability to gain yards after catch. What does this mean for Nick Foles, though? Well, it means that in 2013 and 2014, he was able to post pretty good quarterback ratings on Eagles teams that all in all were pretty all right. Certainly in 2013, he went 8-2 and two with the Eagles uh, with a sparkling 119.2 quarterback rating. And then we had his year starting for the Rams. He went 4-7, and seven, posting a 69.0 quarterback rating in a terrible couple of campaigns because 
like we're talking about, that Rams team was really, 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 really bad. This was right before they had spent that year with Case Keenum, where not even the mobile Case Keenum could get away from enough pressure to make these Rams look all right. And then they transitioned to Jared Goff. Nick Foles was there first, and he did not play very well. But then, of course, he comes onto a Super Bowl-loaded roster, with the Eagles and becomes our most recent Super Bowl MVP and everybody cocks their heads. How did this guy do it? How did Nick Foles do it? Well, I'd show you the plays if I could, but the gist, like I've said earlier, is that this is the perfect distributor for your offense. Nick Foles has the accuracy to make sure that weapons like Zach Ertz, Alshon Jeffrey, and Darren Sproles get their fair share of the ball and get it on time. See, while Foles doesn't have the MVP magic and super pocket mobility that Carson Wentz has, and while he isn't delivering balls that just rocket out on tight ropes into guys' hands, the secret sauce is that Doug Peterson's offense doesn't really ask him to do that. If you watch highlight packages, or frankly the games, you'll see this plenty. Doug Peterson is consistently scheming guys like Darren Sproles, Zach Ertz, and Nelson Aguilar into open space where they can catch it very West Coast style and grab a couple of yards after catch, if not turn these plays into big yards after catch boomers that sprint way down the field. This leaves pretty much just Alshon Jeffrey with catching contest catches along the sidelines and Foles is able to deliver those balls as well but most of the time you'll have Darren Sproles squeaking out on a wheel route Dallas Goddard one-on-one and with a step against a linebacker Alshon Jeffrey bullying a small corner Nelson Aguilar open down the field I mean you get a lot of these things I know you know a lot of these weapons names and Foles is able to deliver primarily due to the Eagles ability to keep his pocket clean now if you watch any of the Bears games certainly I can cite you to the Rams the Vikings game that just happened the Green Bay game that happened before that any game outside of the 49ers where quarterback Nick Mullins displayed really shocking poise in the pocket you will see that the Bears front four is able to create major and intense havoc among any offensive line this really is the battle for the ages because the Bears probably haven't faced an offensive line quite as talented and gifted as this Eagles offensive line is going to be coming into this game and with Foles generally weak in terms of pocket mobility He's either going to be running for his life outright, or he'll be standing tall delivering strikes. Make no mistake, while Foles could have the worst game of his career if he's pressured consistently, just like we saw with Jared Goff, he also could do more damage to the Bears' defense than they've seen all throughout this season. It really does come down to whether the Bears' defense, namely their front four, is able to provide pressure or not. Because if they can, it should go well. And if they can't, it should go poorly. I don't expect Wendell Smallwood to be able to provide much of a rushing attack. He strikes me as a very Dalvin Cook type. The Eagles' entire offense, frankly, is very Dalvin Cook in their way. They're great in space. They're not particularly good at shucking tacklers, with the exception of players like Goddard and sometimes Ertz. Depends on how his game is going. Smallwood, though, is very like Matt Forte in that he doesn't break tackles he avoids tackles he's great in space but it's tougher for him to really cram out yards in those tight areas of the field the Bears defense though is so good and has been so good this season at winning one-on-one matchups that I worry he might not be the right back to crack the Bears 
if he doesn't get his space, which, let's be honest, if the Bears' defense allows too much space, they've already gotten away from the game plan that they want to enforce on an opposing offense, he'll be able to get his yards. I just don't think he'll get that space. I'm expecting another 11-ish carry, 39-ish yards performance, very similar to what Cook provided the Vikings on Sunday. A lack of a running game, of course, will put much of the onus on Foles, who suffered a major rib injury in Week 16 that I believe wasn't reported until he re-aggravated it in Week 17 against the Redskins to deliver a big-time performance as he's going to have to step through what I think is a lot of pressure, especially up the middle, take a couple of hits, which is extremely tough to do with bruised or cracked ribs, and deliver on-target balls with enough velocity that Bears defenders can't make a play on. Them. Now, speaking on Foles' injury a little bit, I was watching the Texans game in bulk where I saw his velocity issue, and late in that game, right in the fourth quarter as the Eagles were driving to win the game against the Texans, Foles took an absolutely monstrous hit from Jadavian Clowney, where Clowney hit him straight in the chest, and it looked like Foles had major trouble getting up after that. For my money, I think that's where Foles actually hurt himself. It wasn't in Week 17, it was in Week 16, and maybe they just didn't report it because they didn't think it was grievous or they didn't report it because they didn't want it on the injury report who knows NFL teams can be an enigma sometimes but then in week 17 against the Redskins it looked like Foles's injury happened on a play that just didn't well hit him that hard so I think he re-aggravated it and that means that this week 17 type performance where Foles if you didn't know was able to reset Philip Rivers's consecutive completions mark for an NFL game is roughly what we should be expecting in his performance against the Bears I don't think the Bears defense will make it as easy as the Redskins defense did but if we do allow people to get open I think Foles is still going to be able to deliver bruised ribs and all Look, I'll be honest, this is a tough one to call because the Bears' defense's strengths are what the Eagles' offense is built to counter. The Eagles' offense is best in their offensive line. The Bears' strength relies in their utterly overpowering front four. So the Bears' defense is going to have to crack the code there. The Bears' offense is best at running the ball and throwing the ball short. That obviously doesn't do a whole lot to attack an Eagles secondary that allows the most passing yards in the NFL per game. Not to mention the fact that the Eagles' defense is top 10 in run stuffing in the NFL this year, meaning that it's going to be a little bit difficult for the Bears to establish a ground presence. Philadelphia, on the other hand, doesn't really care about generating yards on the ground, and they haven't all year, as they've relied on the quarterback to get yards through the air, get yards short, use yak from their receivers, tight ends, and running backs to generate offense. Of course, this takes away from the fact that the Bears are the best in the league, at stopping the run so the Bears best asset effectively counters what the Eagles care about the least with all of that said we arrive at the unavoidable truth that this game in its entirety comes down to whether the Bears can neutralize Foles and the Eagles passing attack in as much as they're able to get Trubisky's passing attack going themselves and ultimately 
even though I know it's Mitch Trubisky's first playoff start and that that's a big deal with high stakes, I can't bet against this Bears defense even if it would save my life to do so. This Bears defense is too good, they're too hot, and they've crushed too many quarterbacks for me to think that an injured Nick Foles, as good as he's played over the last couple weeks, is going to be enough to break them now. If Jared Goff couldn't do it, if Kirk Cousins couldn't do it, if Aaron Rodgers couldn't do it, I don't think St. Nick can either. I think, personally, that this is going to be a big Bears win. Eagles 13, Bears 24. The Bears offense goes out and does what they've done every week and manufactures about 21-24 points, while the Eagles slowly watch the scoreboard climb further and further out of reach as time ticks slower and slower down, and they're ultimately just left with nothing they can do. Similar to the Vikings, but not quite as intense a domination. That's my prediction. Eagles 13, Bears 24, as they defend home turf once again this season before marching on to face the LA Rams in Los Angeles. Whew, exciting stuff, right? Playoffs are on us, and it is a crazy time to be a Bear fan. But let's not forget about everything else that's happening in the NFL in Week 17. The number one piece of news that I can bring to y'all is that we had seven more coaches fired this season, bringing us to nine total on the year. That list is in full. Hugh Jackson from the Browns, Mike McCarthy from the Packers, Todd Bowles was relieved of his job with the Jets, Dirk Cutter is gone from the Buccaneers, Vance Joseph is done with the Broncos, Steve Wilkes was let go from the Cardinals, Adam Gase was jettisoned from Miami and the Dolphins, and Marvin Lewis is no longer employed with the Bengals. Pretty shocking stuff, especially with Gase, and honestly, I thought Vance was doing as much as he could, but hey, some of the other ones make plenty of sense to me. Uh, Vic Fangio, as a matter of fact, was actually reported already as having two interviews across different teams, so we'll watch how that plays out. Make sure you stay tuned to Windy City Gridiron to check for any updates on both Bears head coaches and other head coaches around the league. But now turning our eyes to reviewing the games that happened, I'm going to turn and burn faster than ever through week 17. So hang on, because I'm really only going to touch on the games that I think actually mattered. The Miami Dolphins lost to the Buffalo Bills 17-42 as Josh Allen turned an unlikely 224 yards and 17 completions into three touchdowns, an interception, and 42 points. The Detroit Lions then routed the Green Bay Packers 31-0 in Lambeau to end the Packers' season. Really send them off nicely, as Matt Prater even jumps in on the fun and throws a touchdown pass that if you haven't seen, you're going to need to go see that one. The Jets then lost 3-38 in Foxborough to the New England Patriots. The Patriots just sent Todd Bowles out quite unceremoniously. The Panthers then beat the Saints second string 33-14 in a game that just didn't matter for either side. Too little, too late for Carolina. The Jags then unceremoniously failed to challenge the Texans as they lost 3-20. Moving on, the divisional champion Cowboys almost managed to lose to divisional rival Giants as they won just barely 36-35 in a game that was shockingly thrilling considering that the Cowboys were up 21-10. The vaunted Cowboy defense that only allowed 10 points to the Saints ended up allowing a hearty 35 to the Giants who generally haven't been able to score points this season. 
obviously that's troubling going into the playoffs. The one bright side for Dallas? Quarterback Dak Prescott got to play the hero as he threw four touchdowns and 387 yards this game. Not what you commonly see from him, but certainly what you want to see. The Falcons then beat the Buccaneers 34-32 to as the Falcons cleaned every single piece of their coaching staff except the head coach, and the Buccaneers fired theirs. We'll just go ahead and move on. The Raiders then got thumped by the Chiefs 3-35. to Next, the Cardinals lost a thriller to the Seahawks 24-27 to as Russell Wilson made plays late in the game to push this Seahawks team straight into the number five seed. That's what you want to see out of a contender, and it's what we expect out of Russell Wilson. We'll move on from there. The 49ers then lost 32-48 to in a game that was absolutely nowhere near as close as that scoreboard makes it look. The Rams ran the score right up to 17-48 to before promptly pulling their starters and sitting on their number two seed and putting in their backups. The only positive for the 49ers? Super stud George Kittle actually broke the record for most receiving yards by a tight end in a season in this game, so kudos for him. He has been phenomenal this year. I did not watch a minute of Chargers uh, Broncos, but the the Chargers won 23-9 in a game that likely was a big part of the reason that Vance Joseph got fired. Uh, you expect more out of a team at home in mile high, which is fairly easy to defend. But hey, I mean, the Chargers are really good. The Bears beat the Vikings 24-10 to in a lockdown, just snot-beating, older brother-style bash where the Bears got to celebrate being now 12-4 and ridiculous. The Browns then competed with, but ultimately lost to the Red Hot Ravens as the Ravens defended home turf 24-26. to This Ravens weird offensive machine keeps on rolling, and they will smash you up on the ground. Lamar Jackson is completely ready to take a hit, and he'll throw the ball too, though not always accurately. But hey, a win is a win, right? They cruised to an absolute ton of yards on the ground as Baker Mayfield threw a late interception and an early interception that was ultimately just too much for the Browns to overcome. But, hey, Cleveland, this is the best you have looked in years. Take this one to the bank. 7-8-1 and eight and one is a great season, especially where you were last season. Kudos to y'all. The Eagles and Foles then beat the Redskins, who are ultimately quarterbackless, 24 to nothing in a game that was finished out by the third-string quarterback. Obviously, that Foles health stuff is a lot to monitor, and I've actually heard whispers that Wentz may be coming back, or at least healthy, but honestly, I have no idea what to understand anymore when it comes to the Eagles quarterbacks. I don't even know who's the best one to start against the Bears, but I'm expecting Nick Foles, and I still think they'll be able to win. The Bengals then lost to the Steelers 13-16 to in a game that probably just made both fan bases sad. Or happy, if you're that kind of pessimist. Marvin Lewis is finally fired from the Bengals, and it's been a while. Uh, and the Steelers end up missing the playoffs, which would have been a complete shock if you'd told me that seven weeks ago. That said, over the last couple weeks, they've deserved it. So, I, I guess that's that. And finally, the Colts beat the Titans 33-17 in a game where they officially gained that playoff spot. Blaine Gabbert just wasn't enough to contend with the red-hot Colts that were able to shoot their way to 33 points despite a pick-six and plenty of other turnovers. Blaine Gabbert made too many mistakes down the stretch, and despite a very hard fight from a Tennessee Titan team, it just wasn't enough. And folks, that's my show. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to hear more of what I have to say or see any thoughts that 
what I've got, feel sure to follow me on Twitter at rschmitz28. That's rschmitz28. I'll be there on Twitter. I'll also be around the Windy City site, potentially publishing some articles here soon, if you know what I'm saying. It's playoff season, and that is a phenomenal time to subscribe and rate our podcast. Go ahead and hit us with five stars on iTunes. The ratings always help us know that we're doing a good job and make sure that we're properly promoted to other Bears fans just like you. Again, I'm Robert Schmitz. Bear down and thank you for bearing with me. Hi, I'm Karis Fisher. I want to tell you about another podcast you should check out. It's called Recode Decode. Every week I talk to tech and media's key players about how they're changing our world. I interview tech executives like Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, political figures like Hillary Clinton, and media personalities like John Carreyou, who literally wrote the book on Theranos. Once again, the name of the show is Recode Decode, hosted by me, Kara Swisher. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. See you there. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts.